But we're continuing our study in the book of Ephesians. In fact, this is the last, I think Steve told you, I, I didn't uh, hear the announcements, but he did. He did say, okay, good. Uh, starting next week, we're going to do uh, a series on various topics that you folks are suggesting. And I've already got about six of the ten uh, in, in slotted. Um, and it should be interesting. But if, um, so starting next week, we'll, we'll be doing that. And then we'll come back to Ephesians in the fall, which is really hard for me to do because I've already read chapter 5 and it looks really good. But I'm going to have to hold off on that and uh, just sacrifice for you. So this summer, I really hope, you know, I don't buy. I've I, I got to get to preaching here in a second, but I don't buy the idea. I, you know, the, the book of Hebrews says that th- there is a rest for the Christian. And it is when we go to be with the Lord. Summer is not the rest. Now, I, I don't know where that got started, but the idea is that everyone takes a break from Christianity in the summertime, and I, I hope that no one here does that. In fact, I, I tell you what, I challenge you to double your prayer life this summer. Let's really get into it. Let's see God really move. It, this idea of taking a vacation from Christianity. Take vacations. You need vacations. I need a vacation. Not, no, I do. Uh, but don't ever take a break from the Lord. There's always kingdom work to be done. And... Uh, Okay, enough of that. We'll be talking from Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to just kind of finish up this chapter by going verse by verse and pointing out some various principles that Paul hits on. Before I do that, I want to give a little preface to it, and before I do that, I want to pray. So let's pray. Father, we have no trust. We have no trust in human words. We have no trust in human wisdom. We have no trust in fanciful speeches. Because, Lord, whatever else they may accomplish, they do not change lives. It does not do kingdom work. And that's what we're about, and nothing else really matters. So, Lord, what we need is is not a a smooth sermon and something that's just meticulously crafted. God, what we need is your word, and it needs to come forth with power because there's change that needs to be done in my life and the life of others here this morning. So, Father, we pray that you'd send your Holy Spirit in a powerful way, even as was done during the worship service, and anoint this word, and however it comes out, I pray that it have power to convict, to change, to strengthen, to encourage, and make us kingdom people. We pray in your name. Amen. A little preface preface before we get into the actual text. Um... Many of you have read letters from a skeptic. It's this uh, correspondence that I had with my dad that led to his salvation several years ago. And it consists of him raising various objections to the Christian faith and me trying to answer them. His number one objection, the the first letter that he deals with, was this. He wanted to know how it is that if Christianity is really the true religion... The vehicle of God on earth to save the world. Why has it done so much harm in the world? Why have people been killed in the name of Christianity? Why is there so much corruption in the church? Why has there been so much cruelty and unforgiveness and whatnot in the church? If this is God's true thing, then shouldn't it look a little bit different than the other religions? But as a matter of fact, historically, it fares about the same. Therefore, he concluded Christianity can't be true. I have a good argument. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I get this question quite a bit in a lot of different ways. Sometimes students will come in, and at least once a year, sometimes four times a year, I get this sort of uh, uh, question. 
A person comes in, they say, you know, I, I came to Bethlehem, and I thought this was a Christian college, and, I, you know, <laughs> I get here, and I don't see Christianity. I, my roommate, my roommate says she's a Christian. She professes it. She even goes to chapel, but, man, at night she just sins, 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 and she goes out and parties, and then she bite back, back bites me and gossips, and then she leaves her clothes on the ground, and i got to pick up after her. How can God be real? <laughs> I'm totally serious. And that's kind of a, maybe a naive example of it, but a lot of people think like this. I don't know if Christianity was real. Why? Well, you should have seen what my husband did to me. <laughs> See, Christianity, and my response is always the same, Christianity isn't about Christians. It's very important that we see that. You can define Christianity as a social religion, I suppose, if you want to. You can define Christianity as a set of beliefs, as a set of behaviors, as a collection of all the people who, who say that they are Christians. And you can call that Christianity... But it's not the biblical way of defining what Christianity is all about. We need to see this here. Biblically speaking, Christianity isn't about an institution at all. And it's not about a bunch of people and what they say at all. And it's not about a belief system, a theoretical philosophy that people hold at all. It has elements of those things. But what it is most fundamentally is a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ that brings life to people who previously were dead in sin. It's life. It's about change. It's about a revolutionary, dynamic new reality that you get when you put your trust in the cross of Calvary. It's about taking people who were dead in sin and doing something different in their life, giving them, making them new creatures in Christ Jesus, giving them a new mind and a new heart and a new spirit and a new orientation, and a new way of living, and a new character in the innermost being. That is what Christianity is about. It's about life. But see, life belongs to those who look like they're living. I mean, if a person's breathing and has, has brain, uh, brain waves, and is walking, and is doing the things that living people ordinarily do, I don't need to ask him for his testimony about whether he's alive or not. Say, are you alive, by the way? No, I just have to look. It's obvious. It's there. It's apparent. By the same means, when I meet a dead person, I don't have to do a lot of investigation to find out that they're dead. They just look dead. There's no pulse there. And so it is with the believer. We need to understand that Christianity was never, ever, ever meant to be a theoretical belief system that primarily concerns what we talk about and that we maybe act on once a week or something like that. It's meant to be, and it really is, a revolutionary reality, the reality of God Almighty coming into our beings and changing us. It's about change. It's about change. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 25 that there's a lot of people on the day of judgment that are going to say, Lord, uh, you know, I, I build churches in your name, preach great sermons in your name, cast out demons in your name. And the Lord will say, yeah, you know, are we related? He doesn't quite say it like that. I'm being nicer. He goes, I never knew you. Because you see, it's possible. It's possible. And this is just a sobering thought that we need to keep in our, our heads it's possible to be a preacher, and it's possible to go to church all the time, and it's possible to be a deacon, and it's possible to be the Pope and not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can, you can do a lot of religious things for a lot of different reasons. Social reasons, you get kudos from it, it's, you know, whatever. But see, for the genuine believer, there's a new kind of life going on, a new pulse that's going on. Now, none of us, what confuses the thing somewhat is that none of us exhibit life perfectly. We are, if we're believers here this morning, we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. But as we've seen studying Ephesians 4, we don't always manifest that the way that we should. We carry, a, we carry about, Paul says, part of the old self. 
part of the self that would be there were it not true that Jesus Christ was Lord of our life. It's our old nature, Paul says. It's, it's life in the flesh. And it is dead. We've seen that. But we carry it about. So while we live and we have a pulse and we have the life of Christ in us, we yet carry about some of the stench of the old self, the death of the old self. It is dead, but we still cling to it. And so Paul says that we need to be continually manifesting the reality of who we are in Christ inside of us and putting off the old self. Put it off. Put it behind you. It's an ongoing struggle. I have no problems. I don't ever even question when a genuine believer is struggling with, with, with sin. That doesn't surprise me. That is the norm. What I worry about is when someone's not struggling with sin. When they're okay with it. A, a believer who's, who's, who struggles with lust and has got all sorts of screwed up things about lust, I understand that. You can work with that. Their struggle is to put off the old and to put on the new. I understand that. What concerns me is when the believer doesn't struggle with lust, when the believer is okay with it, when they just move in together and, 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 and they just go along their own way and don't care what the Word of God says about it, that concerns me because it makes me wonder. Either they're not, they haven't been taught, and I can understand that, and then you teach. Or it, it's because... I wonder if there's a life there. Is, there. is there a pulse there that gives off signs of life? Is there a conviction there? And so it is with greed or selfishness or homosexuality or any kind of thing you might mention. Struggling with it is the norm because you've got to put it off and you want to manifest the new. But I worry about believers and churches that just say it's okay and you go along with it. And I'm wondering, is, is there a life there? If, where there is life, there will be signs of life. And the signs of life have to do with what you struggle against, the direction that you're going in. Now, Paul here in the passage that we're going to read is about giving us vital signs. He's giving us pulse-checking devices, as it were. These are not things that will make us Christians if we do them. Nothing you can do will make you a Christian if you're not a Christian, except surrendering your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not giving us hoops that we jump through. If we just don't steal and we don't swear and we don't do these things, then we're going to be a Christian. That's not it. What he's doing is he's saying, if there is an inside life there, if there's a pulse there, if the reality of Jesus Christ is there, then there will be something that says yes to this. This is what it concretely looks like to put off the old self and to put on the new. This is what it looks like. And it's going to be very, very practical. Very, very practical. Very, very concrete. Telling us, what does it look like to put off the old and to put on the new? I want to go back and cover a little bit of the ground that we covered last week, just very briefly. And so I want to start with verse 25. 425, I got 20 minutes. Here we go. Therefore, verse 25, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Stop there. The first vital sign that Paul gives us, that we're moving in the right direction. He's going to give us five, or maybe four. depends on whether we run out of time or not. Um, the first vital sign is this. You're about putting off the death of falsehood, and you're about putting on the life of honesty. Putting off the death of falsehood and putting on the life of honesty. You see, the old self, very briefly here, because we've talked about it before, but the old self is a self that is hungry on the inside because you're not getting life from God, which is where you were created to get life. But not getting life from God, you've got to get it from everything around you. I've got to get it from you. You've got to get it from me. Now, if I've got to get it from you, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do everything that I think you want me to do in order for you to like me. You want me to be funny? I'll be funny. You want me to, 
be cool, I'll be cool. You, you know, whatever. I'll strategize to get you to like me because I got to get fed with something and you're going to be my feeding ground because I'm not getting it from God. And that means I will surround my life. And this is what the old self is about. You surround your life with pretense, with falsehood. And you don't even do it consciously. You don't even know that you're doing it. But there, there's, there's a, 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 a facade that conceals everything that you think will not fit into your strategy for getting life from other people, from other things, from your possessions, or what have you. It's a life of falsehood, and it is death. It is part of the old self, Paul says. It's, part, it's an old carcass kind of a thing. An old carcass kind of a thing. So Paul says to put it off. You know where you get life from. You get it from Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ is your source of life, you know what? It maybe hurts when people don't like you. But who really gives a rip? That's not where your source of life comes from. That means you can risk being honest. You can risk being vulnerable. You can be out there. Put off that old falsehood stuff, the pretentious stuff, and it can look very religious. People can put on a lot of religion, a lot of church, a lot of theology kind of stuff because you can get life that way. But Paul says, put it off. Put off that car- carcass stuff and put it on the new self, which is created like God in true holiness and righteousness. Be honest. Be real. Be out there. And then he uses as his, as his example we saw last week, anger. When you're angry, be angry. When you're angry, be angry. But, and this leads to the second vital life sign, but don't sin. He says, verse 27, don't let the sun, or verse 26, don't let your sun, don't let the sun, go, don't let your sun <laughs> see that you're angry. No, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't let it settle on there. Because in doing that, you're going to give the devil a foothold. The principle, the second vital sign is this. Where there's a life of Jesus Christ, you're about putting off the old and putting on the new, and that part of that means putting off bitterness and putting on forgiveness. We've talked about that. He hits that same principle in verse 32 of this chapter where he says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. You see, in the old self... Everything I'm about is what you see right here. This is everything I'm about, my body, my mind, what I own, the things that are valuable to me. That's who I am. So if you steal that or hurt that or rape that or take from that or insult that, I'm hurt to the core of my identity. And there's rage there because all that I am has been violated. And part of how I will respond to that, we saw this last week, the old self wants to say, I've been hurt and I'll get back. Vengeance is mine. I will retaliate. And I don't want to get rid of this anger. I want, to, I want them to pay. And we think, and this is the deception of the enemy, we think that we make them pay by staying angry with them. So we digest the anger. We go to bed with the anger. We sleep on the anger and it becomes poison to us. It's death. It pollutes the way we look at the world, the way we think everything about us. And we're the ones who get harmed. And that's an old self kind of a deal. It's part of the old self. Paul says, put it off. Put it off. It's death. Put it off. It's a carcass thing. Put it off and manifest who you are in Christ. Release that anger. Be done with it. Be angry. Say it. And then release it. Forgive. Because who you are in Christ Jesus is this. Who you are in Christ Jesus is this. You've got a worth. If you're a believer this morning, even if you're not a believer, you've got this if you just would lay hold of it. But you've got a worth, a value that comes from God because he loves you with an everlasting love. You're going to heaven. He died for your sins. You're pure and spotless before him. That's what gives you worth. You don't need any more worth than that. 
And other things in your life may be valuable. Your house, your car, your family, your body, everything may be valuable, but it's not who you are. You have an identity that goes beyond those things. And that means, that means if we understand it, that there isn't anything that anybody could ever do to us that would ever affect our essential worth, our essential value. What is eternal? What is most valuable? What is, what is the core of your identity? I can't touch. Nobody can touch. We maybe can assail you and hurt you and harm you and even kill you, but you can't touch where our identity is when we know who we are in Christ. And that means, that means if we understand it, that you have the power to release people, whatever they've done to you. You have the power to forgive people because whatever else they did to you, they didn't take away your eternal worth, which is given to you in Christ Jesus. You have the character of Jesus Christ on the inside. Do you believe that? You have the character of Jesus Christ, the reality of Jesus Christ, right there on the inside. That's who you essentially are. Uh, one who is made in the image of Jesus Christ. The very one who on the cross of Calvary cried out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. To the people who had just whipped his back into a, a disfigured state, spit on him, crowned him with thorns, and were now crucifying him, and all of their sins were being put upon him. In the middle of all that, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. That character is inside of you. You can't do it on your own, trying to forgive. But the character of Jesus Christ, if you just yield to it, comes forward, and the power to forgive is there. You know, I was watching um, uh, The Hiding Place last night. It was on TV, Channel 41. And what a guy, I hadn't seen that for about 15 years. What a great show. And, and there's a part of there where Corrie Ten Boone, it's, it's from her diaries, and she in a concentration camp was developing this bitterness towards the Nazis. It's kind of understandable, you, th you know, because they were killing them and, and, and brutalizing them and raping them and just being demonic. But her sister was leading this Bible study, and in this Bible study, she talked about how the Lord says, love your enemies, forgive those, bless those who persecute you. And then they began to pray for the Nazis. It was just really incredible. And Corey couldn't receive it. She was getting full of bitterness. But see, in Christ, this is the reality, folks. This is, we have the power to forgive everything. We have, it is inside of us. The character is there. If you have it in your head that you just can't release the anger and the bitterness, that's a lie. Tag it as a lie. And Paul says, put it off and put on the new self in Christ Jesus to forgive, to let it go, to walk away from it. It doesn't mean that you're greed with it. It doesn't mean that you're, 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 you're devaluing with the thing that was harmed for whatever the person did to you. It just means that you understand that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not yours. The Lord will settle scores, not you. And so you walk away from it. You let it go and you release it. And there is no greater freedom on earth than walking when you don't have that kind of unforgiveness and bitterness in your life. That's the second vital sign of the Christian. You're moving out of bitterness and rage and you're moving into forgiveness. You're moving out of falsehood and you're moving into honesty. Then the third, the third vital sign is found in the next verse. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Now, when I first read this, I thought, oh, this is going to be, you know, how do you preach this? Uh, okay, you guys, don't steal, all right? Will you stop it? Uh, I'm really getting tired of this, you know. I've lost so many books out there because you people are ripping me off. 
It's like, this is so passe, you know, it's like, uh, how do you get any mileage? There's nothing new about that, nothing revolutionary. But let's think about it for a second. What, what's really behind this verse? Those of you who have been stealing, now that's something you want to put off. Put off the old, put on the new. The old self. The old self lives in a world where it defines, it defines its environment as the feeding ground, the means by which you get your needs met, which means that the world revolves around you. And there is in each one of us, in terms of our old nature, our old self, something that says, if you got what I want, I get it. You see, with little kids, it's, it's incredible. You know, th- and this proves to me that there's a fall. The kids are walking along. Joey's got a nice toy there. Uh, Danny wants that nice toy and goes, poof, and walks away with it. Mine, mine. Hey, where'd they learn that from? Not their parents, obviously, because we're all perfect parents. They, they learned it from nothing. They, they, it's, it's, it's a part of the fall. It wants. And we learn not to steal because we might get caught, you know, so we internalize that and we don't steal. But there he is. We still wrestle with this. So the, the neighbor has the car that, that, that's better than your car, and you want their car, and you can't steal it in your heart. It's called envy. It's called co- covetousness, coveting it. You want their house. Why can't you get it? Da-da-da-da-da-da. You want to look as young as the person you graduated from school with and you don't, and it's like, I want to steal that youth. Because it, it's always trying to get. And Paul says, that's dead stuff, that's old carcass stuff. Put it off, put it off. That's old carcass stuff. The world doesn't revolve around you. You don't live to be a magnet for everything around you. Put it off. And then he says this, two principles. Live honestly, live with integrity, work. He gets so practical here. Work. Find something useful to do with your hands and support yourself and your family. It's a biblical principle. We're just hitting down to the brass tacks here. The biblical principle is if you can work, now not everyone can work. they got things going wrong or whatever. But, but if, you can, if you've got hands and you can be useful with your hands, then you ought to, in integrity, it's a part of your Christ character. This is part of the reality of, 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 of what's inside of you. Something says you should earn your own living. Make your own ends meet. Support your family. In fact, Paul goes so far in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 to say that if a person doesn't work, if they're undisciplined, if that's why they're not working, then they shouldn't eat. He's talking to church leaders about how to go about meeting needs in the church. He says if there's someone who's just undisciplined and refuses to work, then they shouldn't eat. The principle here, the biblical principle is that to eat, you've got to work. Okay, that, that's clear enough. We're living with integrity. Earning your own keep. But then Paul goes beyond that, and he says something that's really big. Did you notice this in verse uh, 29, is it? In order that you may be able to give to those who are in need. Here's where it gets big. Work, find something useful to do with your own hands. Don't steal. And do it. Instead of taking from others, now you work so you can give to others. I want you to know that in the next four minutes, everything I'm going to say is directed towards me. All right? And you can listen in if you want to. But Greg, here up here. You see, Paul, Paul understands something that we need to understand, and it's this. Everything about us, what is most fundamental about us, is that we are called into ministry. We have got inside of us the new self, which has the character of Jesus Christ, which has a self-sacrificial love, a love that wants to give to others, to bless others. And there's that driving pulse in our life that's part of our new self. And we understand that the purpose of life, 
The purpose of life is not just to live and survive and, and to, to, to just be as convenient and make life as convenient as possible. Rather, we are all, we've seen this before, we are all ministers. What's important is the kingdom. This life is a very short prelude to what is important. And so what really matters is kingdom work. And what Paul is saying here is this. Use, rather than stealing, get involved in some employment and use that employment now not just to support yourself, but to bless other people, to have ministry with it. Use your finances for ministry. There's a higher calling for the believer. Now, this is big because it confronts something that is just huge in our culture. And what is huge here is this. We live in a culture that says, number one, that whatever you earn is yours. You have a right to it. You don't need to give it to anybody. It's, it, 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 it's yours, yours, mine. It's, it's right there. And you get to keep it. And number two, you never have enough. Let's be honest here. It feels like you never have enough. You know, when I was in grad school, um, in 1983, I earned $15,000, almost $15,000. I had a family of five to support. We were $4,000 below the poverty line. We were hungry. We had money problems. I mean, a lot of money problems. Uh, it was tough. But I was going to school, so you expect that. But I mean, to take my wife on a date one time, we went searching throughout the whole apartment to find pennies. And we finally found uh, like 141 pennies apiece. Um, and so we're, I was going to take her out on a big date to McDonald's where we could both get a quarter pounder with cheese. And we got down there. And, I, and it, it, the, 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 it cost 141 cents or something right, right about that. And then we got the bill, and it was more because they had raised the price to 148 cents. And I was so mad. <laughs> I told them I was going to get the better business bureau because you advertise 100. You know, now, we say, now that I'm rich, I say $1.41. Back then, I'd say 141 big ones, you know, because that's, you know, you, your scale is so much smaller. I had a friend at that time who made $30,000 a year, and he had a family of five. And you know what? He said he had money problems, and I could not understand how he could have money problems when he makes twice as much as I make. He's rich. How can, if I had $30,000, I'd be given to the poor, man. I'd be, I'd be tithing to the church left and right. I'd just be doing all this stuff. Well, then I get out of grad school, and I get a job, and I didn't make $30,000 right away, but I was getting closer to that. You know what? We had money problems. Then finally I got to $30,000. The big times have arrived, but they didn't feel like big times. I still have money problems. Now I'm making more than that, if you can believe it. I'm rich, but I got money problems. I mean, you got to make ends meet. It just seems like it's always kind of tight, isn't it? Let's be honest, isn't it? It always feels tight. And I know people who make seventy and 80000 and they feel like they got money problems. And it's easy for me back here in the 30 realm to look at them and say, how can they possibly have money problems? But the people in the 15000 realm are still looking at me and saying, how can they possibly have money problems? And there are people who make one hundred and fifty dollars and $250,000 a year and $500,000 a year, and it still feels tight to them. Why is that? The reason is because we have a doctrine in this culture, and we've all internalized it, which says it's never enough. It's never enough. You can always get a little bigger car. You can always get another car, a, a, you know, a better color car. You can always get a bigger house. You can always get a, more, more bed sheets and more clothes and better shirts and more pants and better shoes, more expensive shoes and new tiling and the, and the wallpaper needs more fixing. The light bulbs keep on going out and the grass needs cutting. No, that doesn't cost anything. Uh, but <laughs> you need a new lawn. I don't know. There's always something. There's always something. And then comes taxes. You, Lord, help us when it comes to taxes. The point is, yes, thank you. Hallelujah, I got that word. There's a doctrine here, folks. Now, what Paul's saying is this. Here's how you translate this to Paul. 
Paul is coming right in the face of this doctrine in our culture that says it's never enough and what you got is all yours and you're going to need it because it's never enough. That is, we are the richest country in the world, but we, we're the most selfish co country in the world. We give less than to, to a, a developing countries, third world countries, than any other industrial country. But we're the wealthiest, or one of the wealthiest, have the highest standard of living. But we have a mindset that it's for me, 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 it's mine, I get it, it's, I want it. The one who dies with the most toys wins, and I want to win. And Paul is coming right in the face of that and basically saying this. Paul is saying this. Earn as, earn as much as you want. Man, earning is great. I, you know, if God gives you something useful to do with your hands and it makes a lot of money, praise the Lord. And be blessed with it. There's nothing wrong about that. I don't want to guilt. I'm not trying to guilt myself. I'm wearing a new shirt here today. You know, I, I, do, I, do I really need this shirt? I mean, I used to think like that. It used to drive me crazy. Everything, you know, is this absolutely justified? You know, I, I'm not trying to guilt anyone out. If God gives you something to make a lot of money, make a lot of money and be blessed and be happy. But there's this question that we all have to ask ourselves, whether you make a lot of money or a little money, and it's this. What should be our standard of living, regardless of what we make? Given that this culture has a demonic lie that says that the purpose of life is to live with as much convenience, as much things, with as much good things around you as, as possible, to be as much on a vacation as possible. But we know that that's a lie. The purpose of life is to do ministry. The purpose of life is to manifest Jesus Christ. The purpose of life is to build a kingdom. And so the question is this. How are we to be stewards of what we have, what we've been blessed with? Earn as much as you want, but how much are you going to live at? So that now you can fulfill what, what, what Paul says in Ephesians 4.29, that now you can give to those who are in need. You know, during the Second World War, everything was rationed. I just talked to a lady yesterday, or in the first service who said they had, there was a sticker that, they, that everyone had in their car, and it said, is this tri trip really necessary? Because they were, uh, they were uh, rationing gas. And everything was rationed because it was understood that in a state of war where a whole lot is at stake, namely the freedom of the world... It, Everything has to be rationed. It has to be channeled to the wartime effort. Well, folks, we are in a war. We are in a war. And it's a war that dwarfs in significance World War I and World War II and the Vietnam War and the Korean War and every other war put in between. We're in a war, and we're called to be soldiers in the war. And the main thing we're supposed to be doing is fighting the war, expanding the kingdom of God, pushing back the kingdom of darkness. And so the question is, how are we to ration our resources? The question has got to be asked, and I've got to ask it to myself, what is justified in a state of war? What is justified to live off of in a world where a third of the world is going hungry? What is justified for me to live off of when I understand that there's things I can do to the kingdom of God? You know, and I'm not even talking about giving to the church here. If that's something you believe in, if you think that ministry is happening here, then that should be a part of your ministry. But I'm talking about your ministry. You're a minister, and the people that you minister to are the people in your house, church, in your small group, in your neighborhood, in your city, wherever God might lead you to invest your money. That's, that's kingdom stuff. The question has got to be asked. You know, the Lord calls us to lay down our life for him. And we all would say, you know, oh, I'd die for Jesus. And we probably would. But we have trouble laying down our wallets for him. Do you know? Well, it's true. It's true. You can have my life, Lord, but just keep the wallet in the back pocket. Everything, everything belongs to him, doesn't it? It's, it's not that a part of what I have belongs to him. If I understand who I am, all of it belongs to him. All my money, this new shirt that I'm wearing, my nice 89 car, 
Horizon car. It all belongs to him. And the question is, Lord, what do you want me to do with it? What do you want me to do with it? To walk with the mindset that the world is not your feeding ground, but the world, the world rather, is your opportunity for, 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 for ministry. And, and, you know, in the body of Christ, if you see, if you've got enough shirts and some, some family doesn't have enough shirts, maybe the Lord will call you to help them get more shirts. And, and if Christmas is coming and they don't have enough to get their kids anything, but you've got plenty to give to your kids, why not bless them with an anonymous gift to help them get some things for their kids? And, and if you've got enough cars and they don't have enough cars, maybe you can get them a car or get their car fixed or whatever. Whatever. But you begin to walk, you begin to walk with the mindset, asking the question, what good can I do in the world around me? Set a ceiling, set a ceiling, and I can't tell you where it's at. It's different for different people. But you set a ceiling above which you're not going to go. And whatever you earn over and above that, you say, this, this is what I'm going to invest in ministry. Okay, I want to be blessed at this level, but this is what I'm going to use to invest into others. And you know what? The Bible promises you that when you do that, when you give, it will be given unto you. And there is such a blessing that comes from just giving to other people what you have. It is, the Bible says that you shall receive a hundredfold, good, full measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. You know what that refers to? I have no idea. So let's move on. No. It, do you ever get like a box of cornflakes? You know, and it's half full, and they say the contents, maybe we're shaken, pressed down, you know, and, and therefore it's not going to be full. Well... David is using a farming analogy there, and he's saying, you know what? When you give, when you give, when you cast your bread upon the water, when you invest in the kingdom, when you stop living for self and begin to live for the kingdom of God and begin to see your employment as a part of your ministry, when you do that and invest in that, the Bible promises that you're going to get back a hundredfold, not necessarily financially, though I've heard of that happening too, but just in terms of your spiritual blessing, the joy, the peace, and other things in your life come into being there. And David is saying, it's going to be like a, a barn or a, a, a cyclone or what do they call those things? Uh, asylum. Asylum? Asi as asylum? That's where you go when you're crazy. Asylo? Asylo. Asylum. I'm going to the asylum. I've been pressed down too much. Okay, you, there's a silo. And he says, you shake this, you shake it all up, and, and the wheat settles. You press it down. You know, get that down, it gets as packed as you can get. And it's still going to be full measure. In fact, it's still going to be running over. That's how you're going to get it back to you. Live with the mindset of what you can give. That's a vital sign of the Christian life. The, the, Christ, the, the Spirit of God is there and saying, put off the selfishness, the, the, the miserliness, the mind, mind, mind kind of a deal. And begin to put on the attitude of Jesus Christ, saying, what can I give, what can I invest, what can I put into others? The other vital sign that I close with, I'm not even going to say anything about, it's just, I mean, it, it, Paul says, put off unwholesome talk, and put on what is godly and, and blessing, or whatever. It means, the word unwholesome means smelly. Uh, it, they use it to describe fruit when it was rotting. And then Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And what he's getting at, I think, is that uh, you know, don't talk in such a way that your talk is going to stink to the Holy Spirit because he doesn't like it. It grieves the Holy Spirit. He's going pew when we talk vile. And it's not just profundity, not even primarily profundity he's talking about. He's talking about saying things that destroy people because he contrasts it with saying, put on speech that edifies people, that builds people up. What really rots before God, what stinks before God is when believers say things to people or about people that tear them down that are destructive. That's an old self thing. It's a way of getting life for the old self. If I'm only five inches tall, but I can make you look four inches tall by cutting you down, I'll make you look four inches tall. And then I feel pretty tall. 
That's an old self deal. When your life comes from Christ, you don't need that. One, one, one final word about this. You know, the Bible, we're good at talking about, oh, fornication, adultery, stealing, murder. If you look at all the places in the New Testament where those things are listed, in almost all of them you'll find right, listed right, in fact, in two cases, right before homosexuality, you find Paul say the word gossip. I'm just going to leave that with you. Gossip. And if we're going to have a crusade on anything, we should have a crusade on gossip. Saying things that tear people down. If it doesn't bless, if it doesn't edify, shut up, Paul's saying. Just shut up. James says that the tongue is the most untamable thing, the most untamable beast on the earth. No one can tame it. And out of its, out of the mouth, James says, comes hellfire, the fire of hell. And the mouth can do that. It is the most destructive weapon we have. We can just say things that can rip people apart, rip kids apart, rip marriages apart. You just say it. And sometimes you can't get it back. But the same power we have to curse, we have to bless. That's why the Bible says an awful lot about what comes out of your mouth. Bless people with your mouth. Let it be something that has a sweet odor before the Lord. That's what manifests the true self that you are in Christ Jesus and manifests the character of Jesus Christ. The other doesn't. Now, if you're here this morning, everything I just said here was not about a behavior that you need to try to do to become a Christian. It's about pulse things, pulse rates that believers need to check to make sure they're going in the right direction. If you're here this morning and you're not regenerate, you're a natural man, everything I just talked about will be impossible for you until you surrender your heart to Jesus Christ. The starting point comes when you surrender, not with words so much. So the Bible says confess with your mouth but to believe in your heart, to receive him into your heart and say, Lord, you know, the devil believes that Jesus Christ is Lord. But the, Jesus isn't the Lord of his life. That's the difference. To be a Christian is not about believing that Jesus Christ is Lord. To be a Christian means you've made him Lord of your life, which means you surrender. And that's where the new nature comes in. If you want to receive that this morning, I encourage you to come up here. There'll be people who would love to pray with you. Or if you have another need, that'd be fine too. But don't leave here this morning without surrendering your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and letting him make you a new creature in Christ Jesus. Let's stand and pray. Father, you blessed us this morning. I, Lord, I just appreciate your blessing. I appreciate the power of worship. I appreciate the power of your word, Lord, and I just appreciate what you're doing here. And Lord God, I pray, Lord, that when we go out of here, Lord, you'd, you'd, you'd be working in us to leave the carcass stuff behind and that we could shine more of your light in this world around us. Lord, and for those here this morning that don't really know you, I pray, God, that you put a hook in their heart and pull them forward here to accept you as Lord and Savior, God. Even as we're dismissed, Lord, pull them forward. Give them the boldness to come forward and break before you. We pray in your name. Amen.